Welcome back to another week of Growing With My Fellow Growers. I'm your host, Jack Greenstock, joined by a short panel this week, but amazing uh, gentlemen, as always. I want to pass it over first to Dr. MJ. Hey, yeah, Dr. MJ Coco here from CocoForCannabis.com. Uh, we publish articles, tutorials, and guides on the science and practice of growing cannabis, and I am excited to talk about some plant training topics today. Also looking forward to that as well. I wrote that in the show notes for the listeners out there. Make sure you're in the live chat if you uh, are joining us on YouTube and passing it over next to Spartan Grown. Welcome, Spartan. Thanks, Jack. Uh, happy to be here. I'm Spartan Grown. You can find me on Instagram at Spartan Grown, all one word, or you could shoot me an email at spartangrown at gmail.com. I am both an organic farmer and a synthetic farmer, so I can help with either. Always a pleasure to have you on the panel with us. Uh, I think it's cool to have both perspectives and also the home grow versus commercial grow perspective, which our next panelist, uh, Brandon Russ, has a little bit of a background in both of those as well. He's more on the commercial end of things these days, but uh, welcome, Brandon. You're muted. What's going on, everybody? I'm always happy to be here, interact with the rest of the panel members, answer questions from the chat. Um, if you're not familiar with me, I'm Brandon Russ. You can find me on Instagram at russ.brandon. And you can find links to my farm, which is Black Label Organics and my biofertilizer company, Bokashi Earthworks. Thanks again for joining us, Brandon. I always appreciate your perspective. Uh, next up, we have our resident IPM specialist, uh, staff writer at Skunk Magazine, and recently or soon to be published uh, as an IPM reference in one of a uh, book coming out. I think it's by Saigo International, if I'm remembering correctly, but Matthew Gates, welcome. Yeah, no, I am working with Saigo, but uh, yeah, that's uh, that's a different group. Uh, I'll have to talk about it sometime soon. Yeah, I'm Matthew Gates. I'm an IPM specialist, as you've heard, and if you're interested in some pest management information, you can find me in three main locations. You can find me on Instagram at Sync Angel. You can find me on Twitter at Sync Angel. You can find me on my YouTube channel, uh, Zenthanol. And uh, yeah, if you have any questions about IPM, you can also find me on my Patreon where we have a Discord server as well. And if you have any cool questions, put them in chat. Uh, and if you want uh, all the comments to be visible, switch to live chat instead of talk. I just got the notification on my phone, but I've got the uh, YouTube up on my computer. So it's great to uh, remind everybody to switch on over to that live chat so they can see all the interaction. So tonight we're gonna be talking a little bit about plant training. This might seem like a little bit of a basic thing for some people, but there are a lot of advanced ways to go about doing it. I've seen everything from like mainlining to cannabis bonsais and a whole bunch of stuff in between. And uh, I think it'd be cool if we just kind of go around the panel. I got some echo going on on my own. Sorry about that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think it'd be nice to... I know we've done this in the Back to Basics episode and a few others in the past, but it's always uh, cool to see where people are at now and if they've changed at all on their uh, training methods. So first I'll uh, pass it over to Dr. MJ and uh, maybe you could give us a rundown of how you like to train your plant. Hey, yeah, I was just <laughs> getting distracted by things, but I can definitely give you a rundown on how I like to train my plants. Um, I almost always run mainlines or manifolds. So. I run plants off of a single node, usually the third node. I'll, I'll grow it out to be about six nodes tall and then chop the plant in half, um, clean up the, the lower growth, um, leave the leaves, and then grow the whole plant out of that one node, um, either topping it twice more or topping it only once more. 
um, to create eight mains off the bottom. Um, and it's an interesting training technique. It really spreads the plant out. I don't generally start with more than eight mains. So for a while there, after I get the eight, you know, the side branches get trimmed off. Um, but you still end up with, you know, triple or quadruple that number of tops um, because you do eventually get sort of side branches that grow up to the canopy as well. I, I find it to be a really good way to sort of spread apical dominance to prevent sort of the, the one single cola from getting too big or too tall um, and to produce, you know, to really fill in the canopy with uh, an even sort of canopy. There are other ways to do that, but I certainly um, have gotten used to, to running main lines and manifolds. And I do that with autos and with photos. Really good stuff. Um, I think that is a great way to go about doing things. And I think a lot of the people on Cocoa for Cannabis have had success emulating similar training. Uh, I was on your Instagram right now. I was thinking about doing some screen sharing because you've got a few really good shots of the main line and how it, um, I think for these types of episodes, it's actually good to uh, give the people something to look at as a reference point. Because when we describe something with our words, sometimes it doesn't always line up with what Someone might yeah, imagine. so I actually have articles on this if you want oh, to share a screen share yeah, yeah. with uh, those with those images that um, would be helpful um, and and really try to take growers through it. I you know it, it's funny a lot of new growers get get sort of concerned about those style of training techniques, but running a main line is like the most formulaic thing. I can tell you what to do every day and it's, it's very simple and you're, you're probably not gonna screw it up too much. Um, LST, which is, seems to be what everybody tries to do at first as, a, as sort of an intro training technique, I think is, is much more of an art and um, requires sort of, you know, a, a lot more catering to the specifics of the situation. Um, so yeah, my, my thought with new growers always is just to encourage them to, to do these kinds of training techniques if their plants are growing well, um, that there's no sort of bar that they need to, to pass before they can top a plant or before they can even do a mainline. I think it's perfectly fine to do it on your first grow if the plant's growing well. I definitely agree. Um, a lot of people that I have uh, seen with their first grows in the last five or so years on Instagram that are documented have done mainlining and either followed the Cocoa for Cannabis guide or I know Grow Eat Easy is another one that pops up on the, uh, they have pretty good SEO. So if people Google like how to train a plant, uh, oftentimes their articles will come up. I think that these are a little bit better detailed at uh, Dr. MJ's site where you can see like he has each uh, node labeled for you, one, two, three four, five, and six. So he's talking about, this is about the size of the plant. He'll grow and then he's gonna to top it back to this number three node and start his main line from there. And you can see an example of what it ends up looking like. So thank you so much, Doc, for uh, sharing with us some of your tips and tricks there. I wanna pass it over next to Spartan Grown. Yep, yeah, uh, for me, so I'll use a lot of different techniques depending on the situation, but the main goal for me is I have four plants that I am putting in a four by four space. So that means each plant has to completely fill to my satisfaction, a two by two square space. So that's my general plan and, and training goal. So I can achieve that by topping. I can achieve that traditional topping. I can achieve that by GML topping which um, 
so a GML topping, I don't know if it's even a topping. You, you don't take the apical meristem at all. You just take the leaves around it. And uh, it, it works just like a top as far as it, well, it doesn't work just like a top because you still have the apical meristem, but you, uh, instead of having two shoots, it just slows that, slows down that branch. So it, it will, um, by removing those fan leaves, I'll call them fan leaves up towards the top of the apical meristem, it could be this small. But by removing those fan leaves, you're removing some of the, uh, let me see, it wouldn't be cytokinins, it'd be the other one. Uh, oxins. Oxins. So you'd be removing some of the oxins, so it's just redistributing them. And so by the time it rebuilds up oxins, the other branches that are lower than it will tend to catch up. So if you could just keep going in there, removing top leaves of the uppermost plant or the uppermost branches, that'll get you there too. But uh, sometimes I'll do a regular hard topping so that I can get the two shoots because I want to multiply my top, my tops, my colas. Um, so it's all depending on exactly what I'm, I do a lot of lo uh, low stress training with those uh, plant yo-yos, which I have right up here. So I can show people what I'm talking about. So it's on tension. So I can take like this and hook this to the edge of the pot and hook this to whatever branch I want. And then I can set it to whatever length I want and put whatever tension I want to uh, bring a branch exactly where I want it and hold it there. So that's another one. So it, it's all really for me, it all depends on the situation, the way the plant's growing and how bad I need it to uh, be different. Um, worst case scenario, I'll just fucking go in there and super crop. Uh, it's not like it's terrible to super crop. Uh, it is in flower, I think, in late flower, but uh, as long as you're within the first two weeks of flower, I'll still super crop if I have something that's grown so vigorous and I can't slow it down. I'll go ahead and super crop it and just bend it over. I think that's respectable. Uh, I've super cropped a little bit later into flower, sometimes with good result and sometimes with lackluster result. Uh, the lackluster being you'd super crop it and instead of popping back up over the next few days, it literally just flopped there and like hung out sideways. But in that scenario, it actually worked just fine because like the light distribution across like the bud it, it filled in just fine it just yeah. never got back up even with the rest of the canopy and I yeah think if you like, super crop it too hard I, I call that a failed super crop if i super crop it too hard it'll never get back to the tops it stays below the upper canopy and that's how i know i went too hard and i did it, i did a bad job of super cropping and i do that still to this day it's uh you got to have a light touch on some on some cultivars one other tip i want to mention that you don't hear a lot and i'm not sh i'm trying to think if i saw this in a scientific paper or not it's just something I do. I don't know if there's science backed up to it or not. But every time I do a, a transplant, I top. So because in, in my opinion, uh, you know, whatever, whatever happens in the roots happens in the shoots. So if I top the shoots, I'm also encouraging those roots to spread out at, right after a transplant, which is exactly what I want. Because they'll I've branch heard. just like the plant branches above it. It's interesting because I've heard people on both sides of the spectrum with that one where some people are like, oh, it's stressful to transplant. So you want to minimize stress. So don't do any training like a week before or a week after. Just like let it be. But then there's people like yourself who are like, I'm going to top it the same fucking day I transplant it. Because when those roots uh, down low are branching out into that larger pot, the top, if you top it, then can also branch out and kind of. You know, that isn't from agriculture, though. That that mindset is from the cannabis field. And it's the only place I've ever heard it you'll routinely see if you work at a greenhouse or something, you'll routinely see people on transplants actually rough the roots up on yep. purpose to get them unroot bound. 
Yeah. So, yeah. You, you often yeah. score roots that are root bound to yeah, yeah, there you more go. lateral root growth after transplant. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's usually more a cannabis mindset. If you've let the plant go a little too long, uh, you know, I don't think there's a big issue with doing a transplant and a topping pretty close together, but I do try to spread it out a little bit, not do it on the same day. I'm in veg. It, it I'm also, sure. They can be stressed as they want. Veg, it, it, well, I, I would, I just, I disagree totally. I have to make sure my veg is super, super on point. I have a specific goal in mind in veg, which is the front load calcium, front load nitrogen. That way I can back off the calcium during transition to push potassium. And the reason I do that is because calcium is a cation that's antagonistic to magnesium and potassium. So if it is really high during veg, it's going to get, it's going to beef out super strong, but you want that uh, lower when you're transitioning um, because too high of the calcium will make it so you don't get enough for the potassium, even if you're adding adequate amounts. Um, so yeah. I take specific care in veg to, um, make sure that they're really, really healthy and that they're like meeting a target level for tissue, um, before the flip. Because when I do that, I know that like, I'll have like super high nitrogen reserves and then I'll feed no nitrogen through the whole cycle, but I'll be able to get all the way to the nine week cycle with green plants and then just see the senescence at the end. I, I follow what you're doing there with nitrogen, Brandon. I'm not so sure you can front load calcium in the same way. I mean, I understand okay. the, the idea behind it in terms of the, the antagonistic relationship with magnesium in particular. Um, you can. What you do is you get the percentage of calcium up in the tissue. So what, 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 I, what I think I'll do, it's mode. just not mobile. So it's, no, 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 it's no, not no, going to no. be able to, to feed new growth. It will be there in the old tissue, but it's just not going to be able to, like nitrogen can be relocated. No, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's not, it's not mobile, but that's why you want to sufficiently fill all parts of that plant because what we'll see in sap is that you'll see um you'll see low calcium uh at the tops of the plants if it's low at the bottoms right and because it can't pull from the lowers you'll just start to see a deficiency so what i'm talking about is in veg getting that percentage in the tissue up above five percent total leaf mass hey guys get out here that way, um, when I when I go into the transition, I'm not adding. I don't have to add. This is energy from a menagerie, man. It's hysterical. Yeah, sorry. Uh, <laughs> I have a new puppy, and my old my my seven year old dog is not a fan. Not a fan of the puppy. No. And then you got Lucky in the background squawking. It's uh, quite the menagerie. That's a good term there, Doc. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it, you do want to lower it, but keep it sufficient. And then you're, what you're doing is you're pushing the cow, uh, the potassium. But I've thought a lot about calcium issues because we face a lot of them growing in cocoa. So th there's been no way that we can sort of avoid continually feeding calcium throughout the, the flowering cycle for that reason. You can't, well, at, at least in my experience, we're not able to, to sort of front load that and then taper off in any way. It, it works really, really well for the, um, the type of cultivation that I'm doing. But again, <laughs> it, 
Sorry. Hold on. Give me a second. Guys. It's all good. Uh, when you get back, we'll talk to you a little bit about training. Noah the Groa has joined us a little bit earlier than expected. So uh, we're going to have him join here in just a moment. Uh, Matthew Gates, our resident IPM specialist. I'm curious if you, uh, when you grow cannabis or other plants, if you have any preferred type of training mechanisms, do you like trellising or uh, any sort of physical supports or things like that? I like that guy that's able to turn a tree into a chair. You ever see that picture? I've seen a few people do something like that, but uh, I'm blanking on the one that you're referring to maybe. Yeah, I'm not really, I'm being very vague. No, I'm, that was a joke answer. Uh, <laughs> Um, you know, I, I do like the, the mainlining process a lot more personally, but, um, you know, to be honest, sometimes I let that go a little bit longer and I just try, I just top a little bit later. Um, I don't grow Christmas trees, <laughs> you know, that sort of a thing, but, um, I'm also, uh, kind of inconsistent to be honest i don't have a real favorite i would say if i did have one it'd be the main lining though it is really satisfying sorry go ahead oh sorry i was gonna derail the conversation some people were asking for some um they're asking what people are doing for their ipm but and i suppose that like um keeping your because this is always a debate in cannabis right like and we've, we've extensively discussed what, what our opinions are about like how many leaves you take off and deleafing and that sort of a thing. But coverage is a big part of like IPM with regards to like chemical and even biocontrol applications. So um, sometimes if you have like a high plant load, um, it can be worth it or even sometimes not worth it depending on how bushy those plants get to sort of like keep them from kind of hitting each other. And uh, with a hot latent viroid being what it is, uh, so nefarious and kind of, uh, pernicious and invisible i know some people who are trying to use things like that as a um, like your management of the actual total foliage and how extensive it is as a way to like prevent uh easy transfer of that pathogen and possibly this could be helpful for other pathogens too it just seems so inefficient to me to leave any space really at all in between plants i mean to to set up your grow in such a way that the plants really cannot touch each other you're, you're i mean in an indoor grow you're just gonna be wasting a ton of light i actually 100 percent agree with you um, I too. That, I so i understand it from that but it's just an important thing that people have to sort of think about um yeah personally i think also because of the way that people move throughout the foliage that um i wouldn't expect that to have a ton of utility so I want to give uh, Noah the Grow a chance to jump in. He's got his hand up and he just got here. Uh, so Noah, do you want to give yourself an introduction and maybe jump in? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I'm Noah the Grow with two E's from Instagram. You can find me there. And uh, yeah, we're just kind of listening to what you guys have been saying the last couple of minutes. Um, I have a quick question. Um, if you think that you could, uh, for Matthew, if you think that you could be in a situation where maybe you might be more prone to some type of a pest or more prone to some type of a, like a, you know, like a powdery mildew or mold. Do you think that maybe like defoliating, like from the bottom up, like just is kind of like as a preventive is kind of like maybe a way that you could just less surface matter. Just, you know, that's kind of how I feel, but I'm just kind of curious what you think about that. No, that's a really astute point. I feel like that's, um, that's really useful in a lot of cases. 
um, because simply like not, there's two main ways, and I think it's very un- uncontroversial. Uh, the, the first removal part of the that, actual pest. Yeah, well, there's that. If you already have the problem, just simply culling them that way, uh, especially if you're in veg, you know, and you're just going to regrow that growth. Uh, that can sometimes be cost effective. But the other way is just that simply by not having as much, I guess you could say, like you say, the coverage of the leaves can be um, cryptic and camouflaging the pest itself. So it can be harder to like scout more effectively. Um, certainly it's a true for other crops as well. Um, so I think that's totally valid uh, to a certain extent. Um, uh, I didn't even, I didn't even think of the fact that it would be easier to, to scout because you wouldn't have as that's a great point. I didn't even think about that. I was just saying that less surface matter for pests and pathogens to be on, but the scouting, that's a, that's an interesting yeah, take. There's I another issue of. there, which is leaves that aren't receiving any light are still going to transpire and contribute relative humidity. And, and that can be an issue for things like powdery mildew. So if you're mm-hmm. facing a, a high humidity situation, situation. Yep. or a low airflow situation, mm-hmm. um, yeah, what we call lollipopping, sort of trimming up the skirts can certainly help manage that situation. I just want to throw out a number on that because um, there's a group here in San Diego, I think it might have been Outco, who, um, not that they're perfect, I think that Matthew has some not so great history with them, but they did a study where they looked at the um, transpiration of the leaves at a certain PPFD level and like whether they're photosynthesizing or just transpiring and like which levels were optimal. That That was on Kiss Organics podcast, wasn't it? Yeah, so they talked about 200 PPFD or below. The the plant is not going to photosynthesize at all. It's just going to be dumping off basically yeah. water or moisture into the environment. So if you are having PM exactly. or too high of RH, then lollipopping anything that's not getting above 200 PPFD of light um, is going to be beneficial to help regulate the environment, uh, increase airflow. 200 seems pretty high to me. Um, they did a actual study, uh, Justice. I can't think of her first name. Allison Justice. Allison, Allison Justice. Yep, you can find it. On, okay, yeah, on. I'm gonna look into that. I would have, I would have thought it was closer to like 100 ppfd, but um, yeah, that's exactly the point that I'm making. If you don't have light, the leaves are still gonna be dumping that moisture into the air. No, that, I think that's a really excellent point, and I definitely encourage people to look at that research. Um, and I think that's part of like, like considering like the holistic system of the plant right because yeah like like that's just the physics of the the biology of that plant and um you know i think that's easy to sort of not consider because it's sort of invisible especially for people who are just starting to grow um i i wanted to say that what noah said just just before was the second point that i was going to make which is that not only do you like make it easier for you to scout and there's less tissue for the pest to like well if it's like an arthropodic insect or a mite to interact with but also, um, you have, like you say, just less total stuff for it to mess with. And uh, that can be crucial and helpful just by itself. You just have like the sort of unnecessary um, or, or minimal damage potential. And then, of course, you have the coverage for your biocontrols and your spray applications and things like this. Yeah, less to scout. So it's quicker to scout and it's easier to scout because there's not as, if you have leaves on top of leaves on top of leaves and you're, rustling through there you're going to see like 70 or 80 percent of the leaves you're not going to see 100 percent. but if you thin it out enough that you can actually go through and properly crop scout you'll find something a lot sooner uh brandon has his hand up and i think he's been patiently waiting i don't know if you have a, a point that you wanted to slip in there brandon but uh go ahead. okay so plant training 
there's so many, like Matt was saying, there's a lot of holistic things that go along with it, right? The physical remover, removal of pests, also the humidity aspect, uh, but there's something that we didn't touch on, which is oftentimes overlooked, okay? So there are certain nutrients that are mobile and that will get pulled from the lowers to sufficiently feed the tops of the plant. Now, if you are deficient, let's say you, you were doing like something was good, like everything was good, your soil was really healthy, yada, yada, yada. Um, but for some reason, you know, you're not getting adequate amount of maybe some of your like photosynthetic chemicals, right? Like iron um, and uh, let's say manganese and uh, magnesium, magnesium, th those ones, right? Yeah. So um, yeah, nitrogen. Okay. So what ends up happening is you remove these leaves that could potentially be a source of nutrition to, for the, to the promotion of the tops of the plants that if you remove those, you're not going to get that. So if you're deficient in, uh, you know, nutri if you're deficient in nutrition, when you do that, while those things are pulling, you could actually further stress the plant because they're not able to translocate what they need. Yep. I agree with that 100%. And that's why I don't cut off the leaves unless there's a reason to do it. Um, those lower leaves are essentially, like you're saying, a bank that the, the plant can draw from if it needs to later on. Do you think there's anything to the letting the plant decide? Like Spartan Grown uh, a while ago said something that stuck, like imprinted, burned in my mind. He said, if I see a leaf that's over 50% fucked up or like damaged or just not looking healthy and it like let's say like you know sometimes the tips of the leaf start to get crispy or whatever it is there might be a spot on it like if greater than half that leaf it might even just start shriveling up because it's not getting enough light or it's not yeah. a good spot in the room like sometimes my plants will just tell me like i don't want this leaf like this leaf looks like shit. i don't think the that right that's the fine. message the plant is sending i think that the message the plant is sending in that situation is i'm going to start pulling nutrients out of this leaf and that's it, why you see it getting deficient and that's why you see the tip it, burn out it, and, it's and also if you cut it off, you're just cutting off that source of nutrition that the plant was just tapping. So I would let that plant it'll die and it's, fall off. Is that, be, is that are you saying this? Are you I'm saying this because it'll, it'll abscess when it's finished? Is that what your point is? Did you say, F oh yeah. My, my point? Or I would, yeah, just so that I'm clear on the, like. The, yeah, the yeah. When the other. plant starts drawing nutrients out of the, out of the leaf, when it starts to treat that leaf as a source of nutrients, then you will notice the, the leaf become problematic looking, but, but that's really right, an indication my, that the, the plant is treating it as a sink, right, uh, sorry, as a point. source. Um, and I, I would let it continue to treat it as a source until it senesces. But, exactly, I guess but, that's my point. Until but, it abscesses and not cut it beforehand is your right. point, yeah. But yeah. also you have to remember that if that is occurring, you're well beyond um, a point where like, it's like, oh shit, like that has to be fixed immediately. Like you need to be able to give that plant what it needs. Um, 
yeah, it could be a multitude it, it, of things. It somewhat depends on the media and the method of fertilization and all of that, whether this is an emergency or not. But yeah, I, I agree. And you all the, also and the time frame, the time frame the as well. I was going to say, Brandon, the time frame, what you just hit on, that's really important for me because I've seen a perfectly yeah. healthy leaf go from like bright green and like Kelly, just like lush to the next day, it was completely dead and gone, where some take a week to start showing a little bit of yellow on the tip and it slowly creeps into the middle of the leaf where there's like different mechanisms that the plant is going through. Like I tried the Jeff yeah. Lowen Fells method of not removing any leaves off the plant ever. And the plant eventually, I just had too many plants in the space. It started picking leaves like overnight. I'd go in there in the morning before lights off yeah. I'd look at where the plant was. I'd go in there uh, right as the light came on. And in that one dark period, there'd be like maybe 10 to 15 leaves that would have gone from perfectly healthy to completely dead and gone over just one dark cycle. And you know, what's really interesting is because I'm able to reference off of data that I collect continuously, you know, you will not see a deficiency in cannabis until it's reached probably around 50%. Okay. That being said, if you can't visually see a symptom, which is also hard because different varieties of cannabis, different cultivars will express deficiency symptoms differently. And I'll give you an example, example, um, copper, uh, not copper boron. When it's really high, you'll have burnt edges on the leaf tips, right? All around the, all, all on the serrations. Yep. Okay. Some varieties don't do that. And what they'll do is it'll actually look like purple. Like it's an uh, anthocyanin type of a function and it's not it's copper it's just a, it's just that the plant responds differently so being able to look at something visually if you're trying to do a visual diagnosis you're already probably 50 percent deficit of what that plant needs right um that's why what we're not when i'm able to do looking at tissue and sap is i can look at uh what the plant is pulling uh, from the mobile nutrients things that are mobile and we'll be able to see if the things in the older tissue have less than the stuff in the new tissue right if everything's adequate and it's sufficient and they match up and they line up we know that there's adequate amount of whatever nutrient that may be that the plant requires um, now sometimes what you'll see is a perfectly healthy plant but you'll see that things like phosphorus is lower and being pulled from the lowers to fulfill the tops. When you see something like that in sap, you know that you need to add phosphorus for this specific variety, but you're able to catch these things before they become a deficiency, right? So you're always, like I'm always able to um, look at how things are moving around and then give them what is preemptively what they're gonna need. I think it's a interesting thing that you're tapping into because I've had grows where the plants stayed green and healthy looking the entire time. And then the very next grow had the plants stay green and healthy looking the entire time. And I did mostly the same, but a little bit of improvement was made and nothing that I could see visually. Like there was no uh, deficiencies on run one, we'll call it, but run two yielded way more healthier plants, uh, better looking bud at the, the finish line. So there's sometimes things where like as growers, we might think, 
oh, it was healthy start to finish. Like I did everything perfect. But if we're not doing the soil testing, if we're not doing the sap testing and tissue testing, we might not know the full potential of what's even possible yeah. uh, or how much healthier it could be. It might look healthy, but like what's the healthiest possible? And, and, like and the other side of what, what he's talking sort of... about there, what Brandon's talking about is that by the time you see visual signs of damage, you're usually way too far. Um, you know, you've been doing damage to the plant for a while. That's true with most of these issues with nutrient deficiencies or other things like light damage, for example. Um, by the time you start to see it, it's like way past that point where you should have been. Cause and you I, kind of, you can't like go back in time and you're no. only going to have the plant for so long. You kind of need those nutrients. When you need right. But I, I just, I always hear a lot of growers talk about, well, I'm just going to keep pushing until I see it react or see it respond negatively. And, you know, whether that's feeding more nutrients or less nutrients or more light or whatever it is. Um, my response is always, by the time you see the problems, the problems have already been going on for quite a while. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that a lot of these sort of nutritional symptoms are like a color change in the leaf or the stem or something like this, which I'm curious about. And I'd like to hear more about because I have a hard time understanding how the phenology of those nutrient deficiencies could be so radically different, but um, I, I, like, like purple stem versus purple stem. But, what, yeah. but, but I was curious, I, I guess the point I want to say sure. is that the, the abiotic factors for like certain problems might not be nutrition. And they can look almost exactly the same. It could be a pathogen. It could be biotic. Um, or too so cold. Like, yeah, you know, things can happen. And so it's important to consider as much context as possible. But as an IPM specialist, sometimes, um, because I, I work with a lot more, I would say that like I'm a biology bias. And I have to sometimes train myself to look at potential abiotic factors too. Uh, like the ones that uh, MG Coco mentioned or the ones that Brandon mentioned. We had a question from uh, the chat. Sour Diesel Tangi asked, well, if I'm using supposedly high quality hydroponic nutrients, shouldn't all of the nutrients be available uh, in the case of like we were talking about earlier, like certain stuff's not um, able to translocate in the plant. So mobile nutrients versus immobile nutrients. Um, they're saying if they supply the plant with nutrients every single time, shouldn't there be basically like the immobile nutrients at the top and at the bottom as well? So I can, I have a really good analogy for understanding how this works. Um, if you have a plant, right, you have to think of it being fulfilled nutrient-wise from the bottom up, okay? Now, things that are not mobile are going to fill up, and then they're going to stop, okay? So, like calcium, you have to build, fill out all of the calcium through all the bottoms all the way up to the top. So, you have to have a sufficient amount of calcium to meet that plant's requirement, and it's the same with the other nutrients. Now, the other nutrients will translocate and they'll be, and they'll go right directly atop things like nitrogen, you know, things like um, uh, uh, potassium, magnesium. Those are things that are going to be able to translocate very easily. But again, it's all about trying, the plant is going to tr try to fulfill all of its lowers and then move everything up. Right. But like, why? That doesn't answer anything about what I was asking, which is why, why the discrepancy between the two? And how do we know? Maybe I missed the question. 
What was the question? Yeah, again? the question was like, so like the purple stem thing that you mentioned, for example. Oh, that's a cation imbalance. So a lot of people will say it's genetic, but if you, anybody who has uh, a variety that they don't think uh, can be green and it's genetic, it's, it's, in my experience, I have not yet found a variety that I could manage and make green and not have purple stems. And death, like my death breath is one of those that it will be really, really purple, but it's because it has um, that particular variety. It has to maintain a certain balance of potassium over magnesium, or it'll, it'll just turn. I mean, it'll turn overnight if the, if that, if that role is, is changed and magnesium goes over potassium. So what I see consistently, consistently across tons of varieties that we're running and pheno hunting over and over again, whether it's land race stuff, whether it's old school stuff, new school stuff, it's that cation balance between calcium, magnesium, and potassium that is affecting the color of the stem. And then also cold, right? So cold can do that, but if those things are in balance and you have a healthy nutrition, you're going to be more resistant to that change. In I want to say two reasons cold is actually going to impact it is uh, cold is known to bring out anthocyanin production across a number of plants, cannabis and otherwise. It's a cold response. It can be shocked into turning more purple if it has the capacity to do that within its DNA. It's one of the responses. Another thing is like I work with a lot of newer growers that either are growing for their first time or switched from HPS or CMH over to LED. And they're noticing that their plants are really uh, turning yellow oftentimes. And I'm one of those people that like Matthew was uh, talking about, like maybe he views it first from a biological perspective. Oftentimes for me, I look at it as like, well, they are growing from seed. There might not be like a pest issue. Like they're a new grower. It's likely their environment's not dialed in. So I ask them, what's you your temperature? To, you and they're increase, usually like- You have to increase your five photosynthetic nutrients under LED. But so Santos, that's interesting. If that's, if that's the case, then I think that would imply that so like the purpling is like an anthocyanin production, right? It's not just like a trick of the light by not having those nutrients more, in the tissues. There's it's a stress ways. response, I think. It, it, it can be. So it's like, um, it can be genetic. It can be 100% genetic. Like you could have a healthy plant turn 100% purple without, and it, can we could maybe make the argument that there's never a no stress grow, but you have plants that turn consistently purple at 85 degrees or 65 degrees. So I don't think it's like a temperature or like uh, you're tricking it to turn purple. Like there's some things that are actually genetically going to go purple. You know, it's really weird though, is because I've grown Gorilla Glue for a really long time. And when I switched to LED and I grew Gorilla Glue, it would purple. And that was something that I'd never seen. And so to me, it, it was like, you know, and it's not all, and, and what I'm seeing too is- Are you let's, talking about the buds, Brandon? Or are you talking about- I'm, talk, I'm, not, I'm talking about the, the buds right now, but also I see more purpling in the stems because, because of the, in, the needed increase in the photosynthetic nutrients. Because look, okay, so I'm running those photon tech lights, right? And I have those things set at 27%, which is super low. And I'm still having to increase things like magnesium, things like uh, iron, 
manganese and uh, sulfur and nitrogen. I have to increase all of those under these lights because they're a lot closer. And I usually run my LED lights really, really high because if I fucking, if I get go, let them go lower, I start running in to problems with those photosynthetic nutrients where like I can't adequately get enough of them to meet that high PPFD. You it's know? like using so, a, sh a shade cloth or a diffuse uh, greenhouse cover where like when you have the glass greenhouse and it gets super intense, the plants aren't gonna be as happy, but when you diffuse it and you get a more even PPFD across that canopy when they're higher up, your plants tend to be a lot happier. And yeah, we're one... dealing with Liebig's law here. So Brandon must be running into some other minimum that is preventing the, the photosynthesis at, at that level of PPFD because it wouldn't be carbon dioxide at that level. So yeah, I would guess... it would be some sort of nutrient that yeah. the plant isn't getting an adequate dose of. Yeah, Not in so Brandon's what... case, but in a lot I'm... of cases, it's been cold for me. Like I, if I have growers, literally, they'll be like, it's 71 degrees in the room or 73 or 72. If I have them push it up to 78 to 82, yeah, almost 100% of the time, their plants will go from yellow as fuck to green and healthy, lush, growing, amazing. Like they're Especially like, oh my God, LED. Especially in LED. Yep. That's one of the things too. I have to run. So I have to run everything hotter and more humid in LED to get the, the right, like photosynthetic capacities. And here's the thing, like I'll do Epsom salt foiler um, because that's, you know, that's the main thing that I see is, is magnesium, but I don't want to push magnesium too high in my soil because it's antagonist, it's an antagonistic cation that interacts with calcium and potassium. So I would opt to do a foiler to make up those deficiencies. But also um, I haven't tested the soil yet for the box and I'll have that later. So I'll be able to do a top dress, fulfill any deficiencies that may be there based off of the data. And then again, the box, you know, pruning and everything getting everything all squared away so everything is level and all that's really really important because i have so many plants close together and i'm doing things a little bit differently you know you should check out brandon you mentioned the five photosynthetic nutrients and chat's kind of chirping off on that is that npk cm no i was gonna ask no no, no. you're you're okay uh okay so it's gonna be sulfur Nitrogen, yeah. magnesium, iron, and, and uh, molybdenum. Those I didn't all... count. Is that five? He did. Yeah, he counted it's on fine. his hand. Um, uh, okay, so the, you know, at the, the, the chlorophyll molecule, the base of that is uh, magnesium. Um, so anything involved in the production of chlorophyll, those are the five chemicals that are involved. I want to give uh, Noah the grower a chance to jump in. We were talking about plant training for a bit there. We're getting into a bit of the chemistry and uh, things like that and botany side of it. But I would love to hear Noah the grower about some of your training techniques and things that you like to implement uh, in your early stages of the veg and all the way up through flower. What do you like to do with your training? I do a lot of uh, obviously topping. I top once and then uh, I like to just kind of like, you know, I've heard different people call it, I guess, super cropping, but I just, uh, whatever branch is like sticking up the highest, I'll just pinch it till I kind of feel it pop. And mm -hmm. I've uh, broken some obviously. And, um, but I've gotten really good at it. Kind of just knowing where to do it and, you know, making that knuckle there. And then just, that'll make all my, you know, once the tops, you know, come out from that one top, that'll make all the tops kind of catch up. 
And then I will lollipop trim the tr- skirts up just so I have airflow underneath it. And then I can, you know, I've, I've usually use a net, but I've done it before. Like when I was in my closet, I didn't have a net and I've done it in tent before. So there's different techniques, but I always do the one, one topping usually like right around the plants, like, you know, six to eight inches, uh, yeah. you know, after the clone. And then I like yeah, to just kind of pinch too. that top one, you know, pinch that top one, whatever's highest. And then as it goes along, I'll do that to just kind of maintain it, keep it, bush it out. You know what I'm saying? And then sometimes I'll even like pinch one and then kind of bend it a little bit. You know, you just experiment as you go. And uh, when you have a few plants, you can uh, you know try different techniques and find something that works for you. You know, I mean, it make, whatever makes you comfortable in your plant training. So I'm showing off some of uh, Noah's plant training in the earlier stages. Uh, going into flower, you could see he does a like you said, the one topping, and then he does a fair amount of bending underneath the trellis net. You can see it fills out pretty good here. And then I'm going to just scroll up through his feed and you can see some of the beautiful buds. And uh, here's a little kind of give you an idea of what it looks like. Oops, not one to load. So here we go. Uh, cheers, Noah. Definitely looking like you're doing great stuff over there. And uh, the training is definitely working. Um, the buds are looking beautiful as well. So always uh, happy to have you I know you showed up a little bit late, but we're always uh, thankful when you get to join the panel. And I love yeah, scrolling through your feed, showing out the buds. Look at this uh, Pepsi can here next to that bud. And then you got Noah showing off some of the uh, hard work, looking beautiful, big, juicy nugs from those HPs. Oh, you're making me blush. Yeah, everyone here is an absolute ninja. And it's a, it's a pleasure to be here with all you guys. Uh, a lot of the stuff that's really popped off my room was just a few techniques that I learned from Spartan and Brandon and everyone here. Uh, so I'm very, very lucky to be a part of this group and, uh, yeah, I love being really here good. every week. So that bio three, six, five soil is working out for you so far. I'm uh, loving how I love it. green and healthy and lush these plants are looking. It seems like it's definitely, uh, working out. I'm, I'm curious to see the final results with it because your other recipe, which I imagine is what you grew this with seems to be working pretty damn well. So it's, uh, gotta be tough to change it up. I saw that and I was yeah. thinking about it. Yeah, I love it. Uh, so actually, uh, Full Duplex, I've seen it on his page. And then I uh, was talking to him about uh, getting hooked up with it. The rep reached out, hooked me up with some. And um, I have some that are in Bioflower right now, Bio365 Flower. I have some that are in BioAll. And um, I'm Ooh. really loving it. It's it's something like I, I one of them I, I put in and I thought, well, it's starting to turn a little bit yellow. And I gave it just like even just a little teeny bit of what I normally give my plants I could tell it kind of burned a little bit. So it's, it's definitely some fine tuning, but everything is super, super green. It is definitely legit. And uh, so there's I'm like a veg mix one... that then you transplant into. Yeah. A yeah. Mix. And I'm just trying to get through one run of flour, but from resisting from just, I'm just going to order a whole pallet of it. Cause I mean, it is definitely legit soil and I am totally in love with it. What size bags are those? Are they like a two cubic foot bag or is it? A yeah. One? Two cubic feet. And um, the, that one right there, that bio flour that's got a lot of nutrients in it and it's, it's really nutrient dense and it's, I think it's a little bit more expensive, but I think the bio all man, the bio all is just for the price and everything is just, it is. Absolutely <laughs> Miss chronic good. seeds is on her way over here with rap right now. <laughs> <laughs> but the small world. So the bio all is the one that is, that's like, you can just use it all the time. You yeah. I, it's, uh, it's great. Uh, so I, I just put, I haven't had the, the balls yet to take it from straight because I use an arrow cloner right now and I haven't put it for, straight from the arrow cloner into that, but I put the arrow cloner into a Dixie cup, which is what I've always done. And I just put a little bit of the Fox Farm Ocean Forest that I have 
but then I transplant it directly into twos in the, in the bio all. And they are, I mean, they're just okay. absolutely luscious. And I will say something. I have been really paying close attention, more close attention than I have in a long time. Cause I'm just really trying to get it dialed in with this new soil. And I decided to trim up some of the bottom skirts just so I'd have uh, less th- areas for stuff. Cause we're getting ready to, you know, get into hotter temperatures around here. And I noticed that it did kind of stunt the growth a little bit. I noticed that when I took off the bottom leaf. So I'm thinking this next time I'm going to take a run where I'm just going to let it go. So I'm really trying to just kind of step out of the box. You know what I mean? Cause yeah. uh, where I was at, I, I, I'm pretty, pretty confident in what I can do. And I, I just want to learn new things. And one of the next things I want to learn is I want to get into cocoa. I've never really done just straight cocoa and I'm sure I'll be over at uh, Dr. MJ Coco's page. He knows way more about that than me. So I'm just trying to learn every single facet of this that I can. That's one I'm thing that I really wanted rocks. to, I brought it up in chat, but it wasn't able to bring it up, you know, with everybody here in the panel. But uh, that's the one thing with the leaf strip, leaf stripping where I'm, you know, different if I'm at home or at work, like the, if I'm doing an organic setting or a synthetic setting, because in a synthetic setting, I can replace those nutrients the next day. But you can do that in organics too. And I can, but not as easily. You can just as easily. Check it out. So one of the things that we're doing at at And why would you be against taking leaves off if you can just fucking replace those minerals? Well, I'm not talking about me. I'm saying in general. So what we started to do, right, is we started loading up our beds with a lot more plants. Basically, we do the same thing. We top when they're really, really young because at scale, dude, you can't go through when plants are big. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It just takes too much time, right? Yeah. So you do, you do them when they're little, you let them grow out, you do your little, you know, pruning before you transplant at the bottom. So when you get, they go in the beds, they're good. Right. Right. So what, what we, what we're seeing is that if we hit these things with the, with a micronutrient um, and, and kind of just like a, like with a low NPK as well, I can do most of these with water soluble, um, uh, uh, mineral sulfates, uh, like, you know, iron sulfate, uh, gypsum, things like that, right? These are all water soluble. Yeah. And so what we're seeing is that when we apply these right after we do our, our, uh, our bottom pruning and we're kind of going through and like, uh, pruning everything out for airflow and stuff, dude, we'll hit them with that solution. And just as we'll a root s- drench you're talking yeah, as a root trench. So we'll hit them with this, with this, you know, micronutrient light macronutrient solution to really just help them like without, with that stress factor. And it really, you know, so they're not affected because, you know, usually we are not having any issues, but when we're testing something, it's a snapshot in time, right? It doesn't mean that that is that every single moment of the day. So I have to preemptively think of what this plant is going to need based off of it. But um, it's not always going to be 100%, you know, so we do something like that. We know like if we're waiting on a test result back, but it's time to do a strip or a prune, we're going to go ahead and do that anyway, you know, and then when we get back our test results, I'll look at it and say, well, I added this, this and this, this is what was happening. Okay, this is, you know, I can either subtract or add. Right. You could even do that foliary and get it to the plant faster that way. Yeah, that's another thing too. And one of the things in organics, if you do a a fulvic, so we're talking like a lot of fulvic acid, maybe like 
200 grams for a gallon of water. And then you put in your micronutrient sulfates, things like iron sulfate, copper sulfate, um, potassium sulfate, all, you know, all those things are, and it's crazy because they're all rocks, man. They, these things come in, uh, uh, like cardboard packaging type stuff or whatever, you know what I'm talking about? The recyclable material. Yeah. And it, and it's like, it looks like gravel. If you didn't know it was plant nutrients, you would just think it was like gravel for your driveway. Yeah. Like gypsum comes. <laughs> yeah, dude. So you can add these into this fulvic mix and then use like an ounce for like 50 gallons as a foiler. Damn. Isn't gypsum one of the components that they use in drywall? <laughs> like it can't it and cement gardening, yeah. gardening yeah. gypsum. And then there's the, there's the two building. different, yeah, there's two different like grades. You get the, uh, the gypsum in your walls and the gypsums we grow with. And typically that stuff we grow with is technically usually a little cleaner as far as heavy metals and stuff like that go. But so look for those reports or get them tested yourself. There's a gypsum mine here in Oklahoma. It's where we source all of our gypsum and it's very, very clean gypsum. It's one of the best that I've ever seen. Um, there's fossil the soil stuff is like cocaine powder, man. That shit's so yeah. white, the diamond grade or whatever it comes out. And it's like, holy shit, this stuff is super water soluble. Like you put it in there and it disappears. It's from the mine out here in Oklahoma. That's a definitely good grade. I haven't worked it's with a lot uh, of gypsum, but even like regular garden gypsum compared to that, in my opinion, is like much, much lower quality. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So if you go get something like just gypsum, maybe at like a garden store somewhere, you're probably going to get these like pelletized. It just, it, I mean, man, oof, it makes me nervous looking at it because I'm just sitting there going, man, there's heavy metals in this. I know it. I'm just looking at it. I'm like, you can smell heavy metals, man. If you know what you're looking at, like you just pay five just, bucks for 40 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then you get, and then you get the stuff that's mined out here. And it's like this f- super fine, fine water soluble. Like you can, it's really cool about the gypsum, right? I mean, you need a lot of it for the solubility of the calcium, but it'll float in solution and it'll stay that way in the soil so every time you water it's still there and, and it'll fall into solution so that's one of the really really good benefits of up gypsum man it is just it's i mean i use it it's one of my main main nutrients because one of the things that people i think don't understand is that calcium is actually your your number one nutrient for cannabis it's uh the ppms are always going to be above nitrogen potassium phosphorus and anything else well, you can smell those heavy metals, but you can taste them too. <laughs> oh yeah. Only if Hopefully we're not tasting the gypsum, but uh, I, I am with you there. Like, I don't know if aluminum is considered a heavy metal, but whenever I think of like the metal smell, I think of like a baseball bat smell that like, I've got one right here, but uh, it's got a very distinct smell. And even like if you licked a baseball bat, which I mean, who knows why you would, you can actually fucking taste it. So it is interesting that you can it smell. It sounds like something you've done, Jack. You know what I, I mean? We've we, we all played baseball and we've all been kids. So <laughs> they, they, People would like kiss the bat for good luck and stupid shit. So that is awesome. It, yes, indeed. Wait, wait, are you trying to say it's not good luck? No, no. it's good luck. You got to believe. got to believe. <laughs> That's where the magic is. This is why I come here for guys. Doctor MJ, dig it, Jack. That was hilarious. That was awesome. Dude, it's, it's like um, 
if you build it, they will come the whole field of dreams that Dude, totally applies true. to cannabis. Like, it's uh, totally true. I was actually just saying this the other day. I was like, and it, I wasn't saying it to anybody. I was just by myself going, if I build it, they will come. And I'm just like yelling this shit in my greenhouses. I swear, dude. Okay. I get, I mean, I get, high, I get high, dude, like before I work and, you know, I you better be careful. Brandon, celebrate life, Brandon. I celebrate life, buddy. That's, that's what we like to hear, man. The dark hearts. Man, that dog of his is really picking up that skateboard, and I've been totally digging that, man. I, I bet it's so awesome. Oh, man, he's pretty rambunctious, um, and it's we can't take the dogs out because it's storming out here, so they are all going a little stir-crazy. It seems like bulldogs, for whatever reason, seem to pick up the skateboarding, man. Chubby uh, Chase yeah, is already out there. That? Dude, I, I keep seeing that in videos and stuff. Uh, just be... It's just like he's a natural. He just like, oh, sweet skate. Yeah, I know how to do this. This is like in my DNA. Like my ancestors are known for this. And so he does it. And I'm like, fuck yeah, dude. This little dog is going to be the best marketing ploy ever. I have a random question. <laughs> I, was, I just saw something in the chat to get back to the grow topic a little bit. Um, somebody's talking about the weather changing to be a little bit cold. I know a lot of us are moving away from that, but if you're in the Southern hemisphere, uh, your winter is going to be coming up as our spring and summer is coming up. So I'm curious if anybody has um, suggestions for heating other than maybe lights. I know a lot of people in the winter will switch to like CMH or HPS or even run certain heaters, but uh, I'm not sure what people, some people despise running electricity just to provide heat. So I'm curious what the panel's thoughts are on that. We had an interesting- This is a Southern Hemisphere question? Well, yes. I, I guess somebody well, says that they're about to get cold. Uh, oh, Australia, yeah. Aust- I think that's Australian grown who was talking. Um, uh, okay. I asked him where he was and uh, he said uh, QLD. And uh, I said a friend in Victoria. And I think they were referring to the fact that it's gonna be cold there. I'm pretty sure that's what you're referring to. I don't know. I have a lot of uh, listeners on my personal podcast, and I sent a few books to Down Under. So I think it's uh, worth delving into, and eventually somebody will hear. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure, for sure. (laughs) It just didn't seem like a question from our part of the planet right now. No. I don't know, man. I always run a heater. I don't don't know what else to say about it. Well, you know, it depends on where you're drawing air from. It depends on how you're set up. If you have a long room, if you're like indoors or if the the space that you're in is itself cold. Um, So many factors. Yeah, there's just so many things that you can think about there. But in a ventilated space, one of the things would be to try to intake warmer air. Um, It's more important the air that's flow, the temperature of the air that's flowing through the space than this the temperature of the the place that the space is is like so if you have a tent in a garage um if the garage is cold as long as the inflow air is warm enough you can keep the the grow space warm enough um air cycles through pretty quickly anyway so that's one thing i would think about the other thing would be maybe to reduce the the airflow if you no longer need it for cooling within the tent both good points spartan you said you use a heater all the time i'm curious what type you use and uh i think sequence uses one over at their greenhouse and it's like a huge one i'm just uh trying to give people an idea of the options we do too um the one thing that just jogged my memory one thing on the greenhouse you have to make sure you know what you're getting um you have to get that stuff vented the correct way in your greenhouse otherwise you're going to add moisture to your greenhouse if you burn certain fuels so this is just something to look into um but at at home i just use an oil-filled radiant heater 
set on a thermostat which plugged into a i think it's an called autopilot or something but it's a controller it's just uh it's auto, always sensing the temperature so i'm not relying on the heater to do it and um i like the radiant heater it's more energy efficient i think um, another thing that i do is i run my lights at night the coldest part of the day so i'm one of my room is going to be generating the most heat on its own from the lights in the coldest part of the day so it's going to help me with heating there um, but yeah i still have a heater in there and that's one of those radiant heaters now i have so much airflow in my room and it's a sealed space so that helps a lot and it's insulated so the walls are all insulated and it's underground so all those things are helpful to me it's all insulation but I still have to run a heater <laughs> and I do, but I have a lot of airflow with my regular fans, floor fans and things like that to mix the air well within the room. I think it's very important too. Do basements hold the, um, I, I forget what it's called, but there's like geothermal, I think I under like six or 10 feet under the ground, it's always like 55 or 65 degrees or something like that. I don't know if, um, if my space does, cause it's like literally six, maybe six, four, you know, six foot four is, is, is how far down it goes. But um, it is always like, like way cooler feeling when you go between the two levels. Like, you know, upstairs always seems at least 10 degrees warmer. So um, for sure there is an effect. I'm not sure if it's as, as strong as, as like a geothermal would be. Yeah, I just wondered heat rises too. So that might be another explanation for why the heat in the higher part of the house, but go ahead, Brandon. Sorry, I cut you off. If if you look at our greenhouses, you know one of the things that we were talking about as a company when it comes to the cold temperatures out here in Oklahoma, because obviously we want to switch to LED lighting, which is more energy efficient, and we believe that we can set up um, solar enough solar here to completely eliminate our electric bill. And then what we were looking at is, you know, we have a propane bill because we have two heaters in the back of each house and they're able to maintain temperatures. However, that also dries out the greenhouse. So if it's in the middle of winter where it's, you know, cold and dry, it makes it challenging to bring up the VPD for moisture um, in the beginning when we're, we have small plants, once we build more biomass, it's a little bit easier. But one of the things that we are looking at is the electric cost for the HPS lights during strictly during winter time in the coldest part of the season. And if our electric is cheaper than the cost of propane. So what we're doing is we're kind of looking at the overhead of which, which is more expensive to run during certain time frames where, you know, temperatures are an issue. Could you what light, is propane? It doesn't make sense, I guess. I'll say, could you light depth the hottest part of the day and use that as your night cycle? No, well, supplement on the end or something. So we could light depth, but the problem is, we don't have air conditioning units in these uh -oh. greenhouses. So what would end up happening is the humidity in there would spike crazy and it would just cause a massive amount of pathogens. Yeah, you'd have a temperature spike too. Yeah. Yeah, being the hottest point of the day, it's uh, 
greenhouses tend to hold a lot of heat. They used to call them hot houses in some occasions. So depending on how it's built, they'll definitely trap lots you know, of heat. We do have a huge wet wall. And this week, later on this week, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be adding uh, industrial water chillers that will chill the water that's run through the wet wall. So even when hot air from the outside is pulled through the vent system, through the wet wall, we'll still have something like 55 degree water that's running through that. So that way we can at least offset a lot of that heat that's coming in. Isn't one of the drawbacks of the wet wall, if like the humidity is super high, it won't do as good of a job of cooling? Or is it vice versa? Yeah, so wet walls will add humidity, especially in the backs of the houses. So, but that's one of the reasons why we have really good airflow. We do our pruning and then we have what are called low, they're okay, they're fans, right? They're big fans, but they they don't blow real strong air, right? They blow. It's more like an air mover. It's just like kind of a slow spinning, but it just has a good force to it. So you get that consistency. Yes. It's, it's, you know, specifically for making sure air is, you know, moving consistently. It's really cool to see some of those uh, larger fans and how they operate. I've even seen like, uh, I don't know what the name for it is. They're, it kind of looks like a, almost like a half dome. It's like an upside down fan that blows up and then the air is kind of recycled down and around so it's not blowing too intensely but it moves a fuck ton of air you see them in a lot of indoor uh units and it just kind of keeps the air circulating and, and moving uh without being too intense and causing like and I, damage you know, on the plant i gotta give a shout out to all the home growers that are doing you know small systems small rooms tents because it can be really really difficult to maintain consistency in those things and the guys that are doing that are just getting killer results and making badass weed um props to those guys because dude i am not the best tent grower um i do better when like everything all the parameters are in place and it's it's difficult man even working with the box that i have right now it's gonna take probably two runs to really dial that thing in Dude, it went. It was so much easier to grow like outdoors or in more commercial setups where you have huge ceiling heights, like lots of commercial equipment. When like I started out my first home grow in a tent and closet, it was so much smaller than anything I'd ever done before. There were so many additional challenges I'd never expected. Um, but the one thing I will say is for anybody who is setting them up or who's got them set up now, once you get it to the point and ideally like you've got it dialed in, then it can pretty much coast for a lot of people because like you get the right amount of equipment fans uh exhaust uh air conditioning if you need it dehu if you need it um humidifier if you need that and once you get to the point where you're like all right i know what my space is and you can um dial that in it's a great feeling i'm sure a lot of the people in the chat have done it or they're uh, actively working towards getting there i guess we should yeah and on the other side of that it's a pretty powerless feel like when you have a tent that's getting too hot or too dry or something and you don't have that right equipment and you don't have the budget to sort of go and buy whatever you need so those are some stresses that i think every sort of new grower goes through on their first run and yeah it definitely gets easier when you get the right equipment the one thing i'll say is a lot of people they get too much light and that often leads to too much heat so if you can appropriately size your light using the coco for 
this uh, Grolight calculator that'll help you right off the bat yeah. because like I even for example I ran 315 watt CMH over a five square foot space when it's meant for a nine square foot space so I was dealing with too much light and a little bit too much heat and it caused me a lot of more challenges than I would have had if I would have gotten a smaller light set up yep. and uh, the other thing is just some this is the cheap home grow some tips because the environment regulation I think um, is one of the things that people have a lot of hard times with and Doc gave a great example of like you're growing and your grow tent is like extremely dry, which a lot of people, their early plants, there's not a lot of vegetative uh, mass. So you've got like these small pots, either solo cups or one gallons, and you got these tiny little plants and the RH in your room is like 20 or 30 or 15 or whatever the fuck it is. And you're like, oh my God, what the hell am I going to do? Um, I've tried a few different things. I put bowls of water in the room and just let that like evaporate out. Um, I had drip trays that I would, when I'd water it, let the water stay in the drip tray. And then uh, a tip from the local hydro store that used to be open here, the guy said, does your tent have a um, waterproof um, tray in the bottom? And I said, yeah. So he said, well, just pour clean water in the bottom of the tray, fill it up like an inch or two. If you have, I mean, this is, I set mine up where I don't have any cords running across the floor. All of my cords are at least a foot off the floor. So there's no water uh, getting in there. But if you're able to do that and flood that tray, you have basically the entire square footage of your tent now has water that's going to be evaporating yeah. off and it'll, raise your humidity which is often very very needed it'll make your plants grow faster uh, healthier and just more often than not it's it's needed to get your rh into the proper range for people in new tents that are just starting off and if hey, you're you a new know. grower you know the only thing i would add to that jack is i would just put a towel down um just get a sopping wet beach towel and, and put that down on the floor or after you put the two inches of water i'd put enough towels down to soak it up the towels actually increase the the evaporative surface area of that and actually increase the the rh in that room rather than decrease it and it also sort of seems a little bit safer than just flooding the, the tray with water um but yeah, for, for a lot of um, small scale growers, I, I agree. You can do these little hacks um, to get through your first grow. Nobody yep. wants to have to keep doing that forever though. Nobody wants to have to keep like changing out wet towels or whatever um, for a long time. And I, you know, it, one of the it benefits of being fun. a cannabis grower is you, you usually by the second, third grow, you can afford, uh, you know, to upgrade your equipment a little bit and get the stuff that you need. Yeah, like a, uh, a, a bunch of old towels in any grow situation is definitely a pretty good move to have on hand. You'd be surprised how many times I have a stack of older towels. Oh, oh yeah. This fell here. This or when you here, flood. Just grab it. Oh, yeah. Bells. So, Dude. Yeah, old towels is generally a good way to improve marital relations, too. How many yeah, times totally. have you guys flooded uh, a room or left the RO on or left the water on? Anybody who doesn't have a float valve or a float valve that they trust too much and it uh, stops working that one time and they flood their whole room. Man, I have this um, this pump that just recirculates, you know, either bio controls or nutrients in my reservoir if I'm watering. And sometimes it, because it goes up and it makes a little L, uh, sometimes it whoop, does a little rotation and it starts spilling water everywhere. Well, I learned I from the, uh... Spartan here to get a Berkey water filter and I have a Berkey water filter and I absolutely love it. And it's really helped me out and way better than what I was doing, but I th I'll think I'm cool and I'll like, okay, I'm going to fill up this gallon and I'm going to walk over here and do this real quick. And the next thing I know, the water is just all over the floor. So I've definitely done that recently a few times. Oh, I've done that. I don't know how many times, dude. I can't even count a lot. <laughs> oh, I flood, I flood something once a week. It's funny, man. Um, <laughs> the poor man's wet wall is, uh, I came up with when I, one of my first grows in the tent, I was doing the bowls of water in the tent and, uh, I was trying to
to get a basically towel. It was like a hand towel to sit out of the bowl and have air blow across it, kind of like wet wall-esque. And what I figured out was I could take a wire hanger and basically bend it and then like unravel the top. So it had like a spike that went out and the towel would just hang right in front of the fan and then drip into a big bowl of water. And it actually was really effective. So there's a lot of little creative things, but like Doc said, after your first grow, hopefully you can invest some of the money that you're saving on not spending on cannabis. That's kind of what the- idea it's real easy and cheap he says he's got an empty cloner tray put some hydro- hydrogen pellets in it and an air diffuser you know an air stone and an air pump kicks off major humidity in his bed he says yeah yeah dude it, you know what that's the greatest thing about being a home grower growing cannabis you know if you really want to be a good grower it's all about being able to like engineer shit right like figure figure out solutions to make something work because so oh, 100%. Our, you know, our situations are different and it's not always going to work. And we got to retrofit a tent or a room or a basement or an attic or this or that. Right. And so there's so there's more than one way to skin a cat. And so being able to be creative in the things that you do and the approaches that you would take to solve problems is one of the best things that you can do, you know, as a home grower. Somebody just said you can get an ultrasonic fogger on Amazon for 12 bucks. I've seen people do that. Yeah, dude, put it in the I, I use those. We use those in our in our um, our room where we do all our little clones, man. You can take a five-gallon bucket, fill that up with water, throw one of those on there, and it's ultrasonic misting the whole time. They work great. You just, what you just described, Brandon, is kind of what's a part of the addicting nature of growing for me is that uh, – you get that rush of accomplishment when you fucking you get you rush up against the obstacle you fucking just figure your way around it and it fucking works it's like fuck yes it encourages entrepreneurship too i mean look at the plant trainer right so if you the here's the you know the thing about being a good you know business person is if you can find a solution to a problem and and make an invention and make something better I mean, that's part of the, the whole thing too, you know? Rest in peace to uh, Rob Smith of the Atlas Plant Trainer. There's also the plant trainers on Instagram that have like the little weights. It's like a little rubber thing that bends the plant over and locks it in place. And then there's, uh, God, there's so many different little p- products like that. There is a corkscrew, the OG uh, screw that is uh, basically like a bamboo stick with a metal um, wire that is like a screw that people use to train around. And then there's the like see-through. It looks like a little laundry basket that they basically cut out the sides so that uh it basically pops up like one of those laundry baskets that folds down into a cylinder and um, instead of being a full cylinder there's just a bunch of squares around the outside that, that you could trellis the plant uh, for each individual one so a lot of interesting uh, ways to go about yeah, that doing some of these like training a tomato thing to me than the cannabis thing but I, I, he makes them for cannabis i've seen some bigger ones that he makes that one yeah. i think it's called the yeah, plant farmers thing. are some of the most ingenious uh you know problem solvers in my experience they come up with some pretty cool stuff and have had for millennia dude farmers are fucking awesome shout out to all the farmers out there i feel like a farmer is like being able to grow your own food is almost like a uh, yeah it is called the plant trainer (laughs) being able to grow your own food is almost like secret knowledge now you know dude I mean? right like, like people yeah. are like what it's like, they grows <laughs> like, like, are you kidding me <laughs> when, when the major producers of food are the people that brought you roundup and heroin um 
you know, it's probably a good, a, probably a good option to grow your own food. Yeah, that's good. The, the knowledge of how to do it is, is absolutely like sort of a superpower. I agree with that. And yeah, that's one of the cool things about we're all farmers too, guys. I mean, I, I think that, you know, that's one of the reasons we want to celebrate this. It, it's oh, these are good skills that's, to have, not just to be able to sort of grow your own cannabis. Yeah, it's very it multidisciplinary. It's always, I think it's no mistake that we have. That's always, that's always what I put down when I'm, uh, you know, sorry about that. I guess for overlapping. You know, for me, cannabis has always been about freedom and independence, self-sufficiency, being able to create your own medicine, grow your own food. All that stuff is really about getting away from, you know, these large conglomerates and these institutions that kind of get us trapped in a, in a way of living. And, you know, I just, I want to be independent. I want to be real free. Like, you know, the constitution free common law, not statutory, not fiat currency. I want like real substance, I want real value for guys. Uh, what we're I'm talking about uh, trying to keep it more on the grow side of things. And I know that the aspiration of freedom is a, a great thing, but I, I don't want to, push people away because last week we did have some complaints about getting a little bit too political so sure. I, I just wanted to direct the attention i guess to yeah this is a screen. really interesting product i've never actually seen this before yeah so i showed off three different ones this is the stem trainer i also showed off the um god i'm already forgetting the name uh but there's another one i was just th- looking Planet at the other day called Cannabender that's similar to this thing you're looking at there yeah they're like 3d printed weird, plastic Cause you like, you can make a plant look just like that without like a special trainer to hold it down. You just have to be, yeah. I think this is marketed at new growers to be honest. Uh, yeah. I was just going to say, you definitely can't print it. And you know, I probably can't too, but there's probably people out there that can't. So, but yeah, I, I, I see oh, what you're saying for sure. Sometimes I'm like, wow, like people can't do that. But I mean, I forget sometimes that, you know, I've done this so many times. Sometimes it's just like waking up in the morning, like, do water my plants and doing the things I need to do in my grow. It's just, it's just part of my routine. Yeah. yeah. Well, it depends on the thing. I've often been in a situation where I just super cropped a plant and I'm like, man, I, I want something to kind of hold this in place. And some of these little plastic gadgets seem like they might be pretty convenient for that. Um, but I, I do tend to agree. It would depend on sort of the, the price point. They're the probably not worth a lot because you can fashion something can do up all something of- else. The plant yo-yo oh. can perform all of the tests of all of these things that you've shown so far. And they're pretty cheap too. Yeah. The thing is too, you know, you have to like, for me, when I'm thinking about things, I have to think about what it, you know, the amount of time something is going to take and what it's going to cost. Because when you're yeah, dealing then you with, take and remove when you're dealing with that'd be a set, nightmare. I mean, when you're dealing with 800 plants in a single greenhouse, you have to take, you know, every all the small things in into consideration well yeah that's why we trellis multiple trellis yeah this plant trainer looks like to be honest it'd be the least um work maybe you could just pop it up around each plant yeah, each like day you just kind cage. of pull it it's like a cage like mendo dope style outdoors you can even I like see how this plant. Got the, i like the tops of it honestly how they put a uh like almost a scrog across the top i saw yeah the, but isn't that just they're like called a stackers cage? yeah it's exactly it's it, like it's a, a tomato fabric cage. tomato cage but it's 98 translucent fabric they're reusable they're washable and so 
you can basically have your plant in the middle and this person's not really making good use of it. I hate to say it, but um, then you can <laughs> see where people actually pulled it through on the outsides and they're taking up more space than they would have if it was growing up straight up. So I definitely think it can be effective. And those things like Spartans talking about, see like right here on my mouse, if you can see it on the far, yeah. far left, they call those yeah. uh, scroggers or stackers. And you can it's, buy those for different like layers. You can do that yeah. in the middle of the oh, stack Oh, that's as well. cool. That's it's funny cool. because like in our greenhouses, like we have these PVC, uh, you know, rails that go all the way that we use for our trellis, but we'll take like a, a tw we'll take like a piece of nylon twine and we'll run that all around the sides just to like prop stuff up more, you know, just to get them. I mean, it's all, sometimes it's just about just so, being innovative. And so just what like, we do is we get a wider net. I think, I can't remember. I think it's another foot wide or something. So you have it hang off a half a foot. So on the sides, it just hangs over the side and we can use those sides to hold the, those, uh, those sides up a little bit, but to go through and tuck them in through the side. I got to put up a, uh, trellis net on my plants that are in veg right now the, the one that i just posted man i've got my, the plants in my greenhouse number two right now i don't think i've ever seen anything more healthy like i've been doing this a long time and these things are like getting it dude they're growing so fast it's ridiculous somebody said they're not just green when they're that healthy they have like a sheen it was breeder steve on twitter the other day and when yeah. i looked at your plants every fucking last one of them had a sheen they're all the same height they're kelly green dark green just like nice not too dark but they just have that almost like a almost like they were foliared but maybe weren't foliared they just have like a coat to that leaf dude it's so hard. like a gloss right yeah it's because they're they're you know they're producing oils and waxes too i think another thing is that when you spray a time although i do know that you spray preventively a lot brandon but like oh yeah spraying, I, you can eat away at that, at that so um, one of the things you, people people don't realize is that you know i think half of our half of our um budget for cultivation is actually ipm damn that's pretty yeah, a lot of people don't uh don't consider the resources necessary to really keep things uh like locked down securely not oh. like you're not like here and there but like very well done um it can be very expensive it's it often it's expensive is. it's your if security you want if you want to continually have excess success it's it's a measure that has to be taken though you know you can't half ass anything especially at the scale that we have because our pressure is larger we have a bigger mm -hmm. space we have a larger plant count so kind we, of a one bad apple spoils the bunch sort of situation right it, exactly and so being able to adequately um, maintain our regiment i mean and we're doing the Bavaria bossy i like to, i really really like mixing together the spore with pyganic um that is hands down one of the best dual effective biocontrol treatments that i have ever seen hands down i really like using suff oil x um and me and using the things like bacillus thuringiensis because now we're starting to see leaf hoppers coming around because it's season more moss so we need to like we make sure that we're in there and that we're doing 
you know, our drenches with our into with our with our biocontrols, and then we're doing foilers with our you know sulfoil and enzymes and the uh, trichoderma bacillus subtilis combo. I so mean, the greenhouse isn't closed and sealed; it's open on the sides or something. No, but here's the thing, though. You know, we have a wet wall that has a vent. We have wow. okay. it's it's more you can put a screen like a put put like a, a, a insect screen on, on the front side of that. I mean, here's the thing, right? Our plants are perfect in there. Um, we, but we just have to maintain what we're doing consistently. Consistency is key, really. Yeah, for sure. I have a consistency question that I think uh, might not be expected from the group, but, and Matthew might even want to jump in on this, but um, as far as like IPM and just general grow management, uh, how do you all feel about having a camera? I know like WISE, W-Y-Z-E camera makes pretty affordable cameras now that you can access on the internet when you're away from your grow to make sure uh, the lights are off when they're supposed to be off or that this fan is running or that this pump is running or anything like that. You can just see the plants, make sure that everything's going okay. Um, do you all implement uh, cameras in your grow? And uh, if so, yes. why and how? I would Although, you know, it. I have a little camera that's like a, a remote security camera um i don't know how much the wise thing costs but the one i got only cost like 20 bucks and it connected to my home wi-fi and then i could check the camera on my cell phone um they could even like pan the camera around and look up and down and stuff and it had night vision so that's pretty cool so there's definitely things like that that are pretty cheap that you can get um you know <laughs> it depends on sort of how much time you have and how enthusiastic you are about your grow uh, also and how well you have things dialed in. But I think cameras are an excellent idea for new growers, um, particularly because new growers really like to, to see their plants and hang out with their plants. And it's probably best that they can do that sort of through their phone or through their computer screen or something a lot of the time when the lights are on rather than sort of actually being in there with their plants yeah and like not having to take unnecessary trips from a biosecurity perspective of course. yeah and even yeah, environmental and from regulation. like a, a gardener exposure to led light perspective and from Ooh, a, yeah that's a, that's a... the climate and the grow tent perspective and for a lot of things i mean spending time with your plants is a good idea but you shouldn't be like sort of going into the tent every 20 minutes i just saw an optometrist actually i want to normalize doing that i have perfect vision still um have had glasses or anything like that lucky me but we'll see how that yeah. I'm about to flex uh, on you. My vision got better. I used to wear glasses and now I have uh, 2016 or 2014 vision. So I'm better than normal. And I think that's because wow. if you use the muscles in your eyes, granted there's genetics. Uh, some people actually have bad enough vision that they absolutely need glasses, but there's some optometrists out there that believe if you use your eyes like outside and in, in different settings, you can actually strengthen them even if they're uh, in a vulnerable state earlier on so i think that might yeah you can push that too far though and do damage pretty easily too that's true so yeah and uv light in in in, in grows and all that sort of stuff and even just the light generally it can definitely wreck your eyes and i live in san diego as you guys know and uh, i go out all the time and i never wear sunglasses because i have this weird perspective like i want to see the world as it is so not with like a tint or anything like that, but that's probably bad for my eyes. So you need to get some Maui gems or a good good pair of polarized glasses that have like the HD optics, where it actually looks better when you have these glasses <laughs> on. 
than yeah. like real life because it, it's taking away some of the harmful rays and it's allowing you to see the more clear colors of the grass. Is that true? I've wondered if that was a gimmick or not. Is that true? It's true. I, I had a pair. I lost them in the ocean, but uh, I just buy those seven dollar polarized ones off Amazon now because polarized like basically if lines going this way, lines going that way, and the sun's rays can only go in basically uh, through one direction. So you're not going to get as intensive light. Oh, polarized lenses. They're very effective. You know, if uh, there is a company that manufactures some really cool shades that I really like, they're uh, all made out of wood. Some are blues optics and they make HPS glasses, they make LED glasses and they make regular sunglasses. And if you are into that kind of thing, you can also use code Bokashi to save 20%. Good stuff. Uh, We have a question from the chat that says, uh, the Honeyman, now we're back on sprays. How about Epsom salt spray concentration? Um, Spartan and Brandon, I think both of you guys use Epsom salts, at least in certain parts of your grows. Do you uh, foliar with them? And if so, what concentration? Tablespoon per gallon of water is standard, I think, across all cannabis cultivation. If I am not mistaken, I think Spartan will probably agree with me on that. Yeah, I was going to do the same. Even for a root drench, if you were going to water it, then it would be the same. Or at least I'll Mm. use the same. I try not to do, um, man, magnesium for me is really, really tricky. Yeah. It tightens up the soil too. I don't, I don't, I don't use it anymore as far as, uh, I don't use Epsom salts at all actually right now. Um, I would use it as a foyer if I had a magnesium VC or something, but yeah, I don't, I haven't used it in a long time. Sour Diesel Tangy asks, this is kind of related, uh, also a foliar question. They say, how often do you recommend foliar feeds also? Can I foliar feed with Lost Coast IPM treatment? They're referring to Lost Coast Plant Therapy, which is an oil-based IPM spray. And they're curious if they could use that with their feeds as well, or should it just be an IPM? Um, So I feel like you shouldn't mix them like like together. No, I would would do them separately. Yeah, you don't want to, you typically, you don't want to mix a nutrient with your IPM stuff. Do those things separately. I really, really like Suffoil X, man. I really like Suffoil X a lot. It's really effective. It's really it's disgusting. Inex- but it it's, inex- it smells like it's, shit. it's inexpensive though, too. You know, so that's one of the kind of things. I mean. But it comes out like one big soybean turd. It's fucking so gross. Like one big white soybean. You got to shake that motherfucker <laughs> Dude, you gotta go beast. Yeah, you gotta, dude. You gotta go beast mode on those bottles, dude. Oh, I know, and they're fucking heavy as shit too. Yeah. So, but I mean, I really like that as uh, IPM because it's really, really effective. It's a kind of broad spectrum. Um, There was a the bug lady, maybe was it Suzanne Wainwright? I think she pushes that pretty heavily, if I'm remembering. Yeah, she recommended it too for sure another bioworks product and bioworks you know they have a pretty good reputation when it comes to their ipm products and different you products zyrotol. you guys yeah. use zyrotol we use that from them that's I actually that's at reset well they'll do the zyrotol for yeah. like cleaning and stuff <laughs> like that the, through the lines is how, well, we like to push it through the lines at the end yeah yeah we'll i have a, uh, a spray out story about... and all that let's let matthew get in here real oh, quick sorry I've, uh, I can't actually tell. I think I might be having an odd connection thing sometimes, at least this uh, episode more than others. So I apologize if I overspeak. But um, 
I do have a fun uh, story about um, BioWorks. I spoke with the, I guess at the time he was either head of the department or the president of the company. I don't remember which one it was. Matthew Krause uh, or Kraus, I don't know. And he, um, uh, I really enjoyed being able to talk with him and an associate of his uh, because they, they were able to walk me through some of the, um, actually asked a lot of like deep, questions about their about um their blueberry bastiana product and um kind of where what were the origins of that was and whether we could use um a penetrant um with the blueberry bastiana and i think we were such as uh, what i forget um it was some sort not, of organic. you're not talking about a surfactant but you're talking about something that will help with the aid of it becoming systemic yeah well it actually was both it was a surfactant that also operated like a penetrant. And he was talking, and this is not for cannabis. Um, this was for like uh, uh, Gerber daisies. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it was specifically because we were dealing with leaf miner uh, flies. So they would get into the leaves and they would lay their eggs and the larvae yep. would live in the margin of the leaves. Yeah. And so we were looking for something that could get the spores because I had read in some research that we could, that in some cases people were able to use, I think it was silhouette. 87 or something like that has some sort silhouette, of yeah. in the chat mm -hmm. um have you used silhouette no i i did a bunch of research on it though um i haven't used it but i know that it is a surfactant that works really really well for the penetration of endophatic bacteria and that might also be why um I saw it in the research doing, uh, I think it was Steve, I don't know how to pronounce his name. I could put it in the chat too, but it's like Savold or something like this. And he actually did, did he worked with um, the uh, USDA and um, all around great guy. And I guess he also worked with, uh, with BioWorks too. And so they had a lot of really cool experience and they just talked to me about it for like an hour or so. And this was like years ago, almost a decade, ago, uh, more like eight years ago or seven years ago. And um, so I'm a, I'm a big fan of people who are willing to go above and beyond to that customer service and helping people out who have those weird edge case uh, inquisitive questions. Just wanted I, to share that. So I've been, you know, I have, you know, microbe concentrate spores for a lot of different species of bacteria and fungi. And one of the things that I am always thinking about is how can I make this more effective? How can I you know, create more colony forming units. And I was thinking about Bavaria bassiana and the way that I currently use it is I just mix it in with um, the, the water. And I usually use like a Pyganic um, for dual efficacy. And what, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about was can, can this thing be cultured in the type of you know, environments that I use to do the other consortiums that I create using maybe something like an insect frass, something on the lines of like a Boka uh, like a Bokashi that's been inoculated with Bouveria bassiana, but instead of using a wheat bran, using something like a frass and to see if, man, I want to see if I can colonize Bouveria bassiana on insect frass or on insect chitin, like chitinase, um, to see if I can use it as an effective like top dress for you know different insect pests. That'd be real. That's something that I keep thinking about, and I'm just trying to figure out how I can do it. 
I talked with Steve Reisner at Potent Ponics because he did something with like IMO4 where they were using uh, insect frass and using it to, I think Spartan could probably tell a little bit more about the story, but in Africa, I think they had like locusts and they were spraying it and it was uh, really helping them uh, it either got rid of them completely or knocked down the numbers really significantly. So, yeah, GHA stands for grasshopper active, for example. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think he came on the show. Was he? I don't know. I, I, I go on to my shows. I think he might have been on the show. He's, I can't remember where I heard it. but He did come on the show. Okay. But yeah, so that's so cool. He, so what his idea was, was, you know, the traditional IMO you use in rice to collect, a, um, what would you call it? A uh, organism. Indigenous object. microorganisms, Indigenous, right? Indigenous, thank you. So um, what he thought at the same time, why not try to, uh, you know, you're using the rice, the rice as a food source to entice the microbes that you're looking for. Why not throw in the actual thing that you're wanting to get rid of, which was locusts at the time. Um, I think he used frass. I can't remember if he actually, there was a locust storm. So it's pretty easy for them to get locusts. You I'm could sure. certainly crush up Tighten a bunch of bodies. Frass. Well, there's some. Well, there's probably, there. there's probably chitin in frass too. Yeah. Some Almost degree. always. It depends on the bug we're talking about, though. The, okay, so the science behind it was, was he was looking for chitin because he wanted something that would attract a chitinase-producing microbe, obviously. But I believe he, he took the actual locust because there was a locust storm or something going down. But it might have been insect frass. My memory doesn't serve me well here. Either way, he, he put that in. So when he cooked the rice itself, he threw the chitin in with it. And so it was... Uh, so then that rice was, we'll say, inoculated with a chitin also. And um, when he used that to make the collection, and then he, he actually had to go all the way to IMO3, which was to make it a liquid IMO. Um, then he was able to use it in a, uh, in a foliar application that completely decimated the grasshoppers, which I thought was awesome. You're, mute, you're muted, Brandon. I'm going to have to hit him up because one of the things that we deal, deal with out here are leaf hoppers and they're the little little tiny ones they're tiny little grasshoppers but they eat the shit and there's there's tons of them we dealt with them yeah. last year this year we haven't had so many because of all the storms and it's still raining and all that but that's one of the things that we're looking at is we have another bacteria that they use specifically for grasshoppers and you give them basically a food they eat it infects them infects other grasshoppers i need to be able to figure out all these different microbes the best way that i can you know expand colonies because i think it is going to be really effective um for a lot of the issues that you know come up at different times of the year i'm sure he'd totally be down to, to, to walk you through the whole process and it's something you're probably pretty familiar with so um yeah, he just, to my knowledge, that was the basic overview of it. He just used uh, the, the chitin itself as a uh, inoculation in the uh, cooking of the rice. Um, and then he just set it out in, in, in nature and, and let whatever show up, show up and start working on it. I think it's a cool idea, but uh, one of the main problems with biocontrols like this, like uh, entomopathogenic fungi and bacteria, is that like, um, and this, the same biowork story is relevant here. Um, when I was asking about a plan that I had to use um, the conidia and propagation materials uh, as like a trap and like use an attractant and kind of like get the insects to sort of like, um, like bait it in such a way that's attractive so that they 
land on the the propagated material and then they have a exoskeleton full of the stuff and then kind of um, create that problem for them before they even start to produce um, leaf miner eggs and that kind of a thing. And they were telling me that one of the problems with doing something like this or rearing it over and over again, like, can we do that? And of course, they're the people producing it. So I try to take with a grain of salt. But one of the problems that they, they dictated to me, and they, they sent me some research of that Steve Zavold guy that I mentioned earlier about how it's really hard to keep the virulence traits high. And I've talked about this before. Um, but just because you've um, cultured something from the environment doesn't mean that it's going to like keep those traits if you keep culturing and reculturing it, yeah. particularly um, things that are very physiologically costly, just like with plants. Mm -hmm. um, if they escape environments where they don't need to keep up costly relationships with microbes, they will lose those traits if they don't need them and they won't be hurt by it. And similarly, um, like a Bouveri Bastiana culture or something else that doesn't have to like fight an insect immune system, doesn't have to attenuate other sorts of you know, physiological barriers um it doesn't uh, keep those traits for very long apparently and so that's why they have like millions of dollars of technicians and equipment to like test and make sure that their isolates are up to snuff have i sent any of the uh Bouveri bassiana to you matt definitely not but um would always be interested all right, I'll send, I'll send some stuff over to you. I have some uh, Metahazarium anaspolate. I think that's how you pronounce it. It kills flies and ticks. Yeah, and yeah, I some, definitely. Uh, uh, and I have some uh, Bacillus thuringiensis too. I'll, I'll, send a, I'll send all three of them. You can test them out and see. Yeah, Brandon, uh, yeah I have, would love to do that. Do you have the buffalo tree hopper or do you have the red... Uh, Banded, aka the candy stripe leaf hoppers. That's the one I got right there. Neither. That one's my, my oh, part right there. They don't seem to fuck with my uh, cannabis much. I think they're cool as fuck looking. I love how they, they look. Are they're just so beautiful. Cool. Um, that's what one thing I was gonna say is like, damn, it's a shame if you have to get rid of them because they are beautiful. Uh, actually, it might it it it's not this guy. His head isn't very square like this. It's similar to this, but it's different. And they do eat plants. They put little holes in there. Um, you know, one of the biggest concerns that I have with any insect is that, that they can carry vi viroids and that they can also carry um, other parasites like hemp russet mite, you know. So Whoa, what the hell? That one on the top is fucking weird. Oh, yeah. Have you seen those? Those, those got a lot yeah. of um, interesting uh, internet fame when, when those just came out. Uh, I don't remember the name, but. I it's thought that, that all of these weird horns are like a either like some sort of like dispersal mechanism for um, heat or possibly probably more likely um, like pheromones or other volatiles. Uh, but the, it's not the very one well on the right looks almost like a stinger, like the back end of a, a bee. <laughs> right. It could also be a mimicry too. Um, oh, a lot of like a weapon. Yeah. Like maybe it's or, uh, used or just to like look hit. like something, so something stays away, kind of a thing. You know? Thorns and spikes and spines are one of those adaptations that work really well because uh, it's not hard to maintain and uh, it's very hard to for some for some things in many ways to like if like a bird or a or a or a dog or a wolf or something goes like bite something like that, it's not going to be very fun. You know, you don't have to do very much to to be uh, problematic for eating. Yeah. Um, actually, I recently 
if you want, Jack, you, I have a video that but Aaron actually helps me produce about um, the buffalo tree hoppers, right? And uh, some of them have those like super humor, super humoral horns, and some of them have like a flat sort of um, non buffalo horn uh, body. Yeah, there we go. And so there's those two. And Aaron actually, shout out to Aaron, who's not here right now, Aaron the grower. Uh, but he sent me photos and video of these on his cannabis plants. That looks pretty and damn so, big. Oh, that's probably forced perspective. Okay, um, I was gonna say, I think, like yeah. hand. holy shit, <laughs> that would be that would be pretty that would be pretty uh, scary. <laughs> um, okay, that's better. I thought yeah. there was a hand. That's a branch. Thank God. Holy shit. Thank yeah, right. Um, so yeah, these little guys. These are kind of neat and. Um, it's just one of the, one of those examples where you you'll get pests that like are kind of innocuous or we don't really know how bad they're going to be for cannabis or other plants even. Um, but whenever we find some, I, I really encourage people to send me their pest information. And that's one reason I try to help people as much as I can, because I will get exposed to things that are new to me. Um, and this was one of those examples. And I was really appreciative that Aaron shared this footage and allowed me there's not a lot of research on these either for that matter. So I couldn't even tell you, you know, what the, what the true fallout would be, but in my experience, they're not a huge problem, but um, yeah. There I think they are. here's Aaron's image, the cannabis plant. Mm -hmm. I've been seeing. You can see one of them's beetles. got like a brown color. I've been seeing cucumber beetles uh, on cannabis recently. Yeah, I agree with that. A lot of other like kind of flea beetle, leaf beetle type beetles, like eating people's, eating the, the holes in people's leaves like you were talking about. I typically uh, give Spartan Grown an opportunity at this point. It's 545 here on the West Coast. I know he's got Michigan Bros Grow Show to get on over to. So I'm going to stop sharing my screen here for a second so we can actually see uh, the whole panel again and pass it over to Spartan Grown and ask if he's got any final thoughts before he gives his final shout out. I want to shout out chat, man. They've, they've been, uh, I haven't been able to keep up too, too much today, um, but they've been saying very nice things about me and chat today. So much love to chat. Thank you. Thank you for everything you said. Um, shout out to Lexi there. I see someone I didn't see with a screen share. So I see she's shouting out me out, but yeah, I'm Spartan grown signing out. Shout out to you guys on the panel, man. I always love hanging out with you guys. I'm always learning shit, man. How can I not show up? So here I am. And uh, thanks for having me. Love you guys. I'm out of here and I'll be on the Michigan Bros Grow Show in about 15 minutes. <laughs> you can find him at Spartan Grown on Instagram or email him at spartangrown at gmail.com and also check out uh, Mitten Canico to see the commercial operation that they got going over there in Michigan. Uh, Caregiver Craft and they're killing it. So shout out to Spartan Grown. Always a pleasure to have him and uh, thank him for his time. So thank you, Spartan Grown. See you at Michigan Bros Grow Show. Later, man. I got to go to. Uh, I have some guests coming over and dinner is waiting. So uh, I'm Brandon Rust and always a pleasure to be here. You guys can find me at rust.brandon, links to Bokashi Earthworks and B Black Label Organics, which is my farm on IG. Thanks, guys. Uh, I'll see you guys next week. Thanks, Brandon. Thank you, Brandon, Brandon, for joining us. I know you're a busy man, and you got a lot going on over there in Oklahoma. So I'm uh, happy for you to, and I wish you con continued successes over there. And uh, I know you're hustling. So enjoy the rest of your Sunday, and uh, we'll see you next week.
we were talking a little bit about IPM and uh, buffalo tree hoppers, and I know um, somebody, I think it was Noah, mentioned earlier it's getting a little bit warmer. And uh, Matthew, I'm curious if uh, you've been seeing just around the Instagram feeds or whether in your professional or personal work, um, seeing any more pests that are popping up now that the spring is sort of upon us and summer is just around the corner in the northern hemispheres? You know, um, right now would be a great time to be um, what's the word I'm looking for? Well, the caterpillars of the springtime are probably getting fat and happy at this point. And there's probably been a lot of like, in some cases anyways, like with regards to moths, moths are the helicoverpa moths, the like budworm moths that people deal with so much. Um, in some places in the world, they have multiple generations or they usually have at least, at least two, um, if I remember correctly. Sometimes they have way more, it depends on where you are. Um, so I would be probably concerned if you haven't seen those yet and you know that they are in your area, that um, you'll probably be getting more coming in and laying eggs. And when it gets more closer to autumn and winter, um, well, mostly before autumn, they're going to go and they're going to pupate. They're going to do that in the ground. And then next spring, they're going to come out as adults and they're going to start that process over of laying eggs and larvae. And then those larvae feed and uh, board to your buds and then you know the process repeats itself but I do have one clip from my Instagram that if you're um, able to go on it uh, this has reminded me that I come across a lot more um, hoverfly larvae lately and I had a really great video of hoverfly um, of a brown hoverfly larva that looked just like a caterpillar and it sucks because it feeds on aphids so when people see them um, I hope they recognize that it's a beneficial and not sort of detrimental <laughs> snappy cow. Um, yeah, it's that one right there in the middle. Yeah. And so like you can tell the difference between a caterpillar and a hoverfly larva because hoverfly larvae, um, they have a tapered point and they don't have like a head capsule. Some fly larvae like fungus net larvae they do have a head capsule and caterpillars always have a head capsule, but these larvae do not. And they have these like neat, neat little patterns, like triangular kind of patterns on there. But see how it's like moving and undulating and uh, it's got this like tapered point and it's like casting its head around to like find a place to anchor. Um, so that's a very kind of fly-like or maggot-like movement. It's funny. I would have thought it's uh, but was uh, leading the way, like right? based on the shape, I thought the head would have been the more round end, but the spiked end is the head and the back end is the round end. Yeah, exactly. And what they do when they find aphids, or at least those that feed on aphids, is they take these like serrated tongs almost and they penetrate the body and they hook into it. And then they just start imbibing all the interior fluids until they squeeze it like a Capri Sun. <laughs> and then they just cast it away. And, um, yeah, they're pretty impressive, if I'm being honest. And so nature is savage. Did they you shoot this on a, a cell phone camera? I did. That's impressive because I've tried to identify pests before and get f quality footage similar to this. And it always ends up being blurry and like maybe I've got to shake your hand or not as good of a camera. But this is uh, honestly very impressive. I'm happy I was able to share the screen because it is a great example of what this is a hoverfly larva you said. Yeah, that's right. And sometimes they're like a green color. Sometimes they're brown. 
there's a bunch of different kinds, but the adults, they look like little, I'm sure people have seen them before. Uh, people who might not know the name. I'm sure you've seen these little hovering, well, fly-like things. They kind of, they often have like a yellow and black coloration, like a wasp or a bee. And, um, but they don't, they have these massive eyes and that's how you can kind of tell them apart. And they tend to like to hang out around like alyssum and like a, a places where the, the plants have like small little flowers. Um, in my experience, that tends to be a really great way to attract them too. But they do feed on aphids and some species feed on like um, bacteria muck <laughs> in, uh, in like uh, ponds and like really anoxic water conditions. A uh, little rat tail magnet maggots, have you ever heard of those? Those are also in the hoverfly group. And um, other ones will feed on decomposing like plant matter or wood. Um, so I've, I've encountered like a, some. Is this a beneficial then, or is this going to be? Well, this one is. This one's an aphid feeder. But hoverflies, flies are super diverse, and uh, that's one reason why it's hard for even me to identify certain um, individual species. But um, and some more self control than me for not squishing this <laughs> thing on your hand because uh, after about like the fifth. Probably wouldn't even have made it to five little squirms. I probably would have flicked it or squished it and just presumed it was bad. But always good to get a picture and send it to an expert and uh, get a proper identification if you can. Yeah, so there's your um, little bug tip of the day. I'm glad that you were able oh, to uh, give us Thank one. You. And we had such a great video to show off along with it because uh, sometimes when you listen to a podcast, uh, you just can't pick up certain things. So anybody who listens to the podcast, definitely make sure to check out the YouTube after and uh, see the video on, or you could go over to Sync Angel on Instagram and uh, it's probably the sixth post down, but I'm sure he's going to continue posting. So it'll be easiest just to find it on the YouTube here. But with that said, I think we're coming up to, uh, there's only a few of us here, so we don't have to get into final shout outs just yet, but I'd love to pass it to Noah the Groa and see if he has any final thoughts before we give our sign out. No, uh, I've been just listening and uh, chimed in a few times and uh, had a great time myself. And yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of cool information in the show today. I had a great time. Well, thank you so much. Uh, always happy to have you. And I know we're not doing the shout outs just yet, but I want to pass it to Doc and see if he has any final thoughts before we do uh, pass it around the horn. Oh, I got, I guess, a couple of things I can I can sort of shout out. We're doing a new strain review giveaway. If you guys write strain reviews this month, we actually have prizes for both um, growers in the U.S. and international growers. Um, Spider Farmer prizes, an SF7000 and an SF4000 for people writing strain reviews this month. Um, check that out on Cocoa for Cannabis. And in just a few days, um, we have, well, you have a week left basically to submit suggestions for that uh, FCE 6500 giveaway that I'm doing. Um, the suggestions there is to figure out how far apart the bars should be spaced and I'm gonna run a bunch of tests and whoever creates the best PAR map wins that light. Um, so you can check out the test report in the grow light guide for the Mars Hydro FCE 6500 and enter your, your guesses there. Um, and just in about a few more days, we're going to start signing up for the Plant Training Grow Challenge, which sort of coincides with today's topic pretty well. Um, the Plant Training Grow Challenge, we divide groups into training methods. We're going to have a mainline manifold group, a group for people that do topping, um, 
a group for people that do bending this time and then a, um, a misfits group. So it's a lot of fun to do the, you know, training challenge to be going along with a bunch of other people that are trying the same techniques and then to compare that to like a group, whole group of people that are doing some other techniques. So it was one of our most popular challenge formats last year. We're going to have a, a bunch of cool prize sponsors lined up for it. And um, yeah, start putting it on your calendar. It's a rolling start in August. Um, the thing with Plant Training Grow Challenge is the flip day is October 1st. So you just try to line up your grow so that you're in position to, to flip to flowering. Or if you're growing autos, that your autos would basically start flowering around October 1st. Those so are some fun. updates I have from news, things you guys can get involved in. That's exciting. Uh, October 1st is always Jack Greenstock's birthday out here. So uh, it's easy for me to remember when the plant training grow challenge starts. I'm still old school and don't post my plants while they're living. So I haven't participated just yet, but I do encourage the people out there to hop on Cocoa for Cannabis and grow along. Uh, they're, it's not like a competition where you have anything to lose you really can only gain uh knowledge and yeah. and potentially win prizes and things like that so it's a great community you'll probably learn a lot along the way and uh it's cool to grow along and see you know some people are going to compare themselves most people do uh there's going to be people that are yeah, further along yeah, than you exactly. and not but as it's far along not a competition so. i mean you definitely can see how your grow is doing compared to other people's but the goal isn't to beat everybody else. The goal is that everybody has a, a really successful grow and that's the mood and the community and everybody's just interested in, in helping support your success. So it's one of these collaborations more than it's a competition, but yeah, I mean, you definitely see some things and that's part of the fun. I mean, you see what somebody might be doing differently than you that's getting better results or different ideas and, and stuff like that. So 100% free to join, there's no catch. It's all about supporting fellow growers. And like you said, there's there's some pretty cool prizes, so. And from what I've seen in the community, it um, the competitive atmosphere, it's not really like in a lot of other communities I've seen. Um, there might be like one or two people that are probably personally just pushing themselves to try and be the best or do the best that they can do relative to the competition. But it's right. like, you don't have to worry about being like the worst grower on there. Cause what I've seen is when I see somebody who's struggling in one of these competitions, when I've flipped through the forum, people are so almost they're rooting for that person who's doing the worst more than they're doing for like somebody like themselves or exactly. somebody who's doing the best. They're trying to encourage that new grower who's struggling. They'll give you all the advice they possibly can to try and get you up to their level and beyond. So it's really cool to see just the, pure yeah. collaboration and, and you know i, I like in this I, I think i said this on this show before too like an obstacle course right like you could run an obstacle course as a competition where everybody that starts is basically trying to beat everybody else and you're elbowing your way through the crowd right or you could run it as a collaboration where your whole goal is to get the whole team across and uh, it's much more of a collaborative mood like that. I mean, everybody wants to do well, but you, you definitely want to help everybody else do well too. And, and they take a lot of pride. The, the sort of older, more established growers take a lot of pride in helping people get over those hurdles and, and getting to successful harvests. So It absolutely. feels good to give people that success that we had early on and having it for the first time and, and seeing how happy it makes them, how much money they're saving and how much it improves their life. It's just a wonderful thing to share. With that said, I want to give it to Dr. MJ to give his uh, final uh, shout out and let the people know where they can find you. All right. Well, you guys can find me on CocoaForCannabis.com. Um, and like I said, check out these things, the, the giveaways, the challenges. Um, I am on Instagram sometimes and I'm here. Um, but yeah, the best place to, to come and find me, we have a live chat room. You can stop in a bunch of the people that are chatting now. You'll recognize them if you stop by the Cocoa for Cannabis chat room. 
And um, yeah, Grower Love to everybody. It was a fun show. We, we got onto some training topics and a whole lot of other things. So thanks to the rest of the panelists. Thanks to you, Jack, for always showing up and pulling this thing together every week. And to everybody that shows up and listens to us and supports the show. Grower Love. Absolutely. Grower Love. Uh, cheers to Eagle Gardens, Chicha B, Chad Westport. Um, we got Chef OMJ, who said uh, all about the grower love. He's part of the Cocoa for Cannabis community, Smot Poker, and uh, Family Farms, just to name a few of the 100-plus people that we've had with us in the chat uh, tonight. Next up, we have Noah the Grower. Go ahead and let the people know where they can find you. Yeah, uh, I'm Noah the Grower on Instagram with two E's. You can find me there, Noah the Grower. And, uh, yeah, I'm always uh, on there. Uh, I've been a little bit uh, lazy. I've had a lot of family stuff going on, but I am going to start posting more. And I got a bunch of cool new stuff with the soil. Shout out to Bio365 for hooking me up. And um, yeah, uh, a big shout out to you, Jack, for uh, for putting this, helping us all out and uh, post the show. And Dr. MJ Spartan, uh, Brandon, everyone that was here, man. Uh, it, it, I really wish that there was information like this when I first started. And uh, I learned a lot from all you guys. So I'm happy to be here and I'll see you guys all next week. Look forward to seeing you next week. And uh, likewise, I've learned a lot from you and enjoy whenever you show up on the show and what you have to share. And I, um, part of the reason I do this is I'm also learning a lot along with everybody in the community and on the panel. It feels great. And uh, it's a part of this community that I really enjoy and uh, look forward to keep on uh, continuing here moving forward. Uh, next up, we have Matthew Gates. Yeah, I definitely have to shout out the chat as well, echoing uh, Dr. MJ and uh, Spartan. I thought that we had some pretty cool questions, especially uh, about the hoverfly poop. Thanks a lot, Chad Westport. Um, it's all nitrogenous waste at the end of the day, isn't it? Uh, but uh, if you want to find out more interesting edge case physiological questions about insects and other arthropods and pests and that sort of a thing of plants, you can find me mostly on my YouTube channel, Xenthanol, for that information. You can also check out my Discord, which you can gain access to for a minimum of $1 a month on Patreon. And we've had a pretty cool amount of interaction so far. And I've had a lot of um, people come in recently. And so I'd like to welcome more people in because it's a much better medium for me to have these sorts of conversations rather than social media like Instagram and that kind of a thing. So if you're interested, I'd be happy to help you out with your IPM issues. Awesome stuff. Well, you've definitely helped me out a lot along the way. And I think that many other people in the community feel that way. And uh, we're thankful for you and all the work you've done and continue to do. Uh, I hope many people are able to support the Patreon if they have the ability to do so. And uh, I guess last but certainly not least, myself, I'm Jack Greenstock. I'm your weekly host of the show, Growing With My Fellow Growers. You can find me at Jack Greenstock on Cannabuzz as well as Instagram, Jack underscore Greenstock on Twitter. You can email me at jackgreenstock 47 at gmail.com and last but certainly not least for the next two years at least i just bought 50 strains.com so if you're looking for a copy of 50 strains of green my first book uh, the second edition paperback is now available on 50 strains.com so you can pay with the card or hit me up direct if you want to pay through venmo cash app or uh whatever the last one is i'm kind of blanking on it but that's cold straight cash straight hard cash some people are like hey i don't do any apps i'll send you cash in in the mail and i actually accepted that from a, a couple but yeah venmo cash app and paypal was the third one i guess so cheers to that and uh, everybody who got a book already thank you all for the support really appreciate that and i will see you all next week peace and love jack greenstock signing out grow love everyone happy growing